Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, in housing, you might just have heard of it. And for the three people in the market industry that haven't, we're seeing a lot of blue chip companies which once outsourced a bunch of their media, creative and production capabilities to agencies and partners, bring it all back inside. There's, of course, much gnashing of teeth on the merits or otherwise of in-housing from agency groups and beyond. But the data here and abroad suggests small brands are doing it a lot more. So on the mics today to talk through their experience of in-housing is a couple of execs from Treasury Wines, home of the mighty Penfolds and Treasury Wines in-house agency Splash. Elsa Beaumont, an ex-agency staffer, is leading the charge at Splash and joining her is Ben Oliver, also from agencies, who is Senior Manager Digital Media. What was originally planned for Splash has got much bigger and we're going to find out the good, bad and the ugly of in-housing, although I'm not sure there's much ugly if Elsa and Ben's experience is anything to go by, other than, of course, a lot of sweat and blood, which we all know about in publishing, by the way. So let's get to it. Welcome to you both. Elsa, maybe just start with what Splash looks like today, what capabilities, how many people, and you're doing what? And and welcome. It's going to be an interesting one, I think. Thanks for having us, Paul. We're um, really looking forward to the chat and appreciate you having us on the podcast. So Splash has been in existence for a year now and we've got 20 people in the team um, and a range of capabilities. So we've got creatives, designers, finished artists, uh, operations and producers, um, and then we've also got a media team um, and we look after all digital media from a programmatic search and social perspective. In terms of the types of projects that um, we do as a team, it's really varied and, and that's one of the things that I'm loving most. Um, so, you know, larger integrated creative campaigns through to packaging design, um, through to innovation projects, um, we're doing some really interesting stuff in the media space, which Ben will talk about today, through to, you know, large toolkit rollouts and more of your traditional um, sort of finished art and design. And so this is about um, both sort of internal work, external campaigns and social. It's everything, right, Al? So that you're doing a whole bunch of executional work that goes inside and outside the business. That's exactly right. And it's it's a good point. So um, originally, we were going to work predominantly with the marketing teams and, um, and on campaigns that would, you know, go externally. Um, but what we're finding is there's a lot of interest across the business in what we do. Um, so we're getting more internal work um, and sort of work from varying parts of the organisation that that doesn't necessarily touch consumers, but is important to the business. So let's let's just rewind a bit because now we've got the sort of the top line on, on what the what Splash looks like at, at the moment. Um, how and why did the in-housing idea get on the radar of Treasury Wines? Um, I guess w- what were some of the challenges that made the business receptive to building its own in-house agency? There is there's a bit of a there's a bit of a risk and a roll of the dice there for companies in doing this. Um, so what was so compelling for the business to to, to look at it? And what was the problem you're solving for? So I think there's a couple of questions there and I'll um, try and answer both. Um, So in terms of uh, how Treasury started to think about in-house agency 
and that model. It's obviously a growing trend both in Australia and abroad. And we've been working closely with the team at Lucian. They're a consulting firm that specialise in in housing and they'd helped to demonstrate over quite a few months the benefits of the model. So they brought a lot of data, case studies, feedback from the industry, other CMOs that had gone down this path to highlight that there was a significant shift towards this model, but also the benefits, which became clear very quickly. From a benefit perspective, you know, you've got a team that sits inside your business. They know your business and your brands inside and out, which helps to get to great effective work more often and more quickly. Um, And there's also obviously a, a big cost benefit to this model, which we'll talk a bit about. In terms of the business challenge that we we're hoping to solve for in in having an in-house agency and, and moving to this model, um, I think TWE was adapting to where marketing has been headed for quite some time. Um, and what they acknowledged is having specialists across creative and content, digital media um, and data-driven marketing, you know, as an extension of your marketing team gives you a real advantage It means that you can obviously move at speed, you can be more responsive to what's happening in the market, but you've also got that cross-functional team who are living and breathing your business and your brands day in, day out, which gets to more effective work and we're seeing that already. And I think I'd be remiss not to call out that, you know, from a business opportunity perspective, um, we could also see that there was going to be great cost efficiencies with you know, bringing these capabilities in-house and and not working with externals for every project. Broad range. Can you talk to the broad range on those cost efficiencies and efficiencies? Are we talking 10 to 15, 15 to 20% on what you were, what Treasury Wines was uh, spending before? It's a really good question. And we don't necessarily think about it so much as a cost saving, um, but more as a cost benefit. So TWE's marketing budget has stayed the same, but what we've been able to do is produce significantly more work than we would have if we were working with externals. So in our first almost year in operation, we've delivered over 400 projects. Right. Um, and, and when you look at the cost comparison of what you would pay an external agency versus, you know, the model with Splash where you're just covering salaries, there's a significant difference. And we'll get to some of that that meaty discussion a little bit later about exactly that. Um, so in the end, the what was the business case that was put to, to management that sort of got them over the line? All that stuff you talked about, cost, cost efficiencies, efficiencies, speed, that was all the sort of what was bundled into it. What Was there anything particular that they, they thought, yep, this is a go? The original business case had um, approximately 20 people from day one across creative design, ops, Uh, media, data and analytics. And the plan was to scale over a three-year period. And in that time, we would take on larger, more complex projects. The plan was to start with two divisions, so Treasury Premium Brands and Penfolds, and with a focus on ANZ. But with time, you know, as we sort of got up operationally um, to move beyond ANZ into to other regions. So we would become a global function. In terms of the desired outcomes that were presented within the business case, like you mentioned, it was about lower costs, higher quality, improved speed to market, greater integration between creative and media and insights um, to ultimately drive more effective work. 
And so how did the internal debate go, Elsa? Was it was it robust and was there concerns raised of should, you know, the 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 on paper it looked good, but was there was there conversations around risk, uh, quality of output or what have you? Was the internal debate a, a laydown or was it some good robust discussion? There was definitely robust discussion and and we certainly looked at the pros and the cons. I think the pros clearly outweighed the cons. And so it wasn't an overly challenging decision to make, you know, for all the reasons that I've just mentioned, like having those specialised skills sitting within marketing, the speed to market, um, the greater effectiveness, having a team that really understand your business, category, consumer, and that connection between creativity, insights, data and media. And of course, the, the cost efficiencies of the model. But in terms of some of the concerns that we explored, um, one of the big ones was the quality of talent that we were going to be able to attract. And right, yeah, you know, I think that there is a bit of a perception within the industry, particularly with creatives, that um, you don't do good work in house. So there was concern: were well, we going to be able to get high caliber, you know, top tier talent? And that was, you know, I was one of the first hires. And that has always been, you know, a really big focus for me. Why were there though? Where, where did you come from? What's your background? You were agency, right? Yep. So I had spent 15 years working in various agencies. So um, just prior to joining TWE, I was at Wonderman Thompson as the business director leading the TWE business, um, which is how I came to know the team. Uh, that's and, how you got poached. And, yes. Yeah, exactly. Fell into this role. But before that, I'd spent almost six years living in the US where I worked at, um, I, I lived in New York and LA and I worked predominantly at Mother but also at um, a digital shop, Big Spaceship. Right. Uh, and earlier in my career I'd worked at D2B and BBDO and a few other agencies. Well, some good credentials there from 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 the agency world, isn't it? And some good yeah. creative shops that you've, you've been with. So the first concern was attracting talent. Mm. Um, I think the other concern that we've talked about a lot and we still do is the team becoming too insular. So, you know, the benefit sort of the benefit is that you're living and breathing the business and the brands, but is that also a potential risk and a negative mm. that mm. you become so focused on that business and brands that you don't have that external perspective? And then the other one that we've talked a lot about is um, sort of risk of burnout and the challenges around capacity, which I'm sure we'll get into later in the conversation, but that's that has been one of the biggest challenges that we've faced in our first year. That just the the sheer volume. Really good um, themes to explore a little bit further, and we will. So, the ambition for Splash. You, you talked about what the plan was uh, at the get go when the business case was put to the business. Has it broadened? Uh, I think it has broadened, hasn't it? Or, or uh, am I making something up there, Elsa? No, that's right. So. In the, I think I mentioned that in the original business case, there was a three-staged approach and stage one was intended to be quite executional in nature. So smaller scale projects, not that larger creative uh, thinking and capability. And also I would say from a media standpoint, less strategic and more executional. From day one, my concern with that, so I, when I came in as the first hire, I was conscious that in order to attract the very best talent, we would need to have quite an ambitious vision for where we wanted to go. And my view was 
um, actually start where you want to end up. And what I really wanted to create was a uh, full service agency that sat alongside or, you know, could be compared to in terms of our output, some of the better agencies in Australia. That's ambitious. I didn't ever want to be just a small scale executional shop that, you know, wasn't really capable of solving big problems through creativity. And so, you know, we sort of shifted the approach quite quickly and, started looking for talent that reflected that. And I think that setting that ambition early and being really clear on, you know, our long-term vision helped us to attract some really high-caliber people from from some of the better agencies in Australia. And it worked, clearly. So you got some. Yes, we did. You know, from a creative perspective, from an operations perspective, and also from a media perspective, we've got really high caliber talent, people that have significant experience in the industry and came from some of the bigger and better agencies around Melbourne. And that has allowed us to take on much more complex um, projects quickly. And I think the more complex projects that we've taken on, it's sort of proved ourselves internally, which is opening us up to new briefs from across the business. Those high caliber people you talk about, uh, I guess you've only been going a year. They're not bored yet. Clearly, they're st- they're hanging around. They're hanging around, but it's it's a good question, and it's I think it's a big part of the role that I play within the team is being relentless in the pursuit for new interesting projects, and I think that sort of comes from that agency mentality of always sort of hustling for the next client or the next big, interesting brief. And it's certainly something that I'm focused on every day. Like how do we keep this amazing high caliber team engaged with a diversity of projects that, you know, whether it be a big innovation project or being a part of brand planning, which is new for a lot of our team, you know, coming from agency, you don't get to be so upstream in the process Um, Mm. or working on, you know, a big creative um, campaign or, you know, really interesting design projects like packaging design or new logo development, you know, just always thinking about what's the next thing and how do we create diversity in the types of projects that come into our team. So you talked about sort of attracting high quality uh, talent uh, on the creative side. Did you have the same uh, ambition uh, for media? Oh, Ben's here. So we should talk quite well of the media team and how that's going. I joke a little, but no, the, the same approach was was uh, from creative. It was across all the functions, right? You were you were you had the same sort of uh, intent. Absolutely, and um, media has been such an important part of what we do, and and also that integration between uh, media and creativity. It's one of the things that I'm loving most about the splash model. It's the connection between those functions. We were lucky enough to, Ben was at TWE and he decided to come into the Splash team um, and his wealth of knowledge and experience from a marketing perspective has been absolutely invaluable um, to us. And, you know, he's also played a really big intermediary role between the departments. And Ben has done a fabulous job of attracting um, high calibre, extremely smart, media specialists across programmatic search and social. I think my role initially was just to tell people how to uh, do their timesheets and, and how to um, 
how to upload folders uh, for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that deep and meaningful stuff in a minute, Ben. I, I think the interesting thing here, right, is that there's been so much debate, at least in the agency world, about the separation of church and state, media and creative, and you know, uh, trying to bring it back together. The the structure of some of the big holding companies doesn't, doesn't allow it, but clearly you two are seeing the benefits of working, putting media and creative closer together and working with each other. It's We, we might explore that a little, little bit later. Uh, ben, so how did this – Elsa's talked a little bit about it, but how did this come about for you? Where were you? I think you are on holiday on, a, on, a, on an exotic beach when the call came in. That, thanks, Paul. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, yeah, I think uh, – where was I? I was in – I think it was in Aries Inlet having a glass of wine when I when I sort of got the notification that the the agency was, was going to happen because it had been spoken about a bit by – um, our, our new chief growth officer, um, and he, he he was involved in a lot of the preconception ideas of what it could look like and budgeting and, and business cases and so forth, and then eventually it became, oh, this is actually going to happen. And then my first thought was, shit, is, am, I, am I out of a job? And then from sort of chatting to my boss at the time and this, there could be an opportunity to head up the media team. And, and my background was very much a sort of a jack of all trades. I've, I've done, I was, I was a journo uh, a, a long time ago, clearly failed. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be doing your job, Paul. But um, Come and work for MI3, Ben. <laughs> my skills are a bit rusty these days. Um, and then, you know, did a bit of journalism, did some public relations, did a bit of IR, social content, um, sort of did a bit of everything. And then um, and then this opportunity came up to really go deep into, into a bit of all media. And, well, so where were you though? You were, I also said you were with the business already. Yeah, I was. So I was, I was digital marketing manager um, at, at Treasury in within the uh, TPB section. And so, yeah, very much kind of jack of all trades, doing a bit of social, a bit of content, um, you know, a bit of CRO, SEO. I was kind of a bit hands-on, a whole bunch of different stuff. And um, I guess I'd always kind of prided myself on being able to do a bit of everything. And then this was kind of in a bit of a different direction in, in, in specialising in, in a particular skill set, which I found quite exciting, um, you know, and I'd, I'd, I'd done a bit of uh, digital advertising before, but certainly this required me to go quite deep and, and particularly in the programmatic side, which I, you know, I, I didn't have a, I was, going to, I was going to be, say, I didn't have a huge amount of experience. I had very little experience. I had almost no experience. Um, so I kind of, I kind of really had to, um, you know, push myself to, to upskill um, in, in a very short space of time. So I, I kind of just went on a tear and, and did a whole bunch of courses and, and um, read lots of books. And, and probably the best thing I did was just speak to a whole bunch of smart people who, who are in this space and know what they're doing. And, you know, guys like, um, you know, you've spoken to Calvin Kane before from points bet, like guys who are just really smart and know what they're doing and just sense checked with him. And, you know, even when we started to make decisions on, on, uh, ad tech, you know, is this the right thing and what do I need to ask? Cause you had to build from scratch, wouldn't you? You had to build everything. Yeah. The tech, the tech stack had to be built from scratch as well. Um, did just out of interest, um, I'll get back to that, but just out of interest, did the, did the digital marketing function at treasury then fold into splash or have you, is there still a team? Where you came from, what happened structurally? They sort of basically separated those parts of my job and, and gave them to other team members. So parts of social now um, have been realigned into the into the marketing team. Uh, other parts have been kind of absorbed into D to C. So it's and it kind of made more sense because my, my role was interesting, but it because I was kind of doing a bit of everything, I probably wasn't being as effective as I, as I could have been because I was spread so thin. Whereas at least now, those parts of my role that I'm not doing now have been reassigned to 
to specific people who it's much more a core part of their of their job competency. So, yeah, that that, that particular role now doesn't exist, and it's just been kind of spread out across those particular areas. And so, what was the so Ben? What was the the digital media remit for Splash? And 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 you've sort of brought up sorry a, a curly for me because I'm uh, so Splash is doing media but not digital marketing. I'm just interested in what Splash does versus the rest of the company. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good it's a good one to clarify. So essentially what my team does is all digital advertising. Yeah. So um, within Splash, basically, uh, if there's an ad that can be bought digitally, my, my team does it. So practically that means um, social, search, retail, uh, and programmatic. And across programmatic, we're doing pretty much everything now uh, from native to display, uh, BVOD, audio, and we've just kicked off our first programmatic out-of-home campaigns. In fact, First one's about to wrap up, and we've got another one in the pipeline for a couple of months' time. And we're, we're looking at some you know, interesting stuff like in-game programmatic um, through tech vendors like Anzu, which is pretty pretty interesting. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we're doing all that kind of stuff. And the divide is so we, we work with our agency, so they're still very much a key partner in that bigger picture strategic thinking. And then we work with them on things like the channel architecture. You know, if a brief comes in, they'll look at the objective uh, and the budgets. We'll discuss how best we think we can allocate the, the funds across various channels to meet that brand objective. We'll go off and take the digital elements and decide how we're going to execute. So, you know, if it's meta, I'll be running reach, we're running video views, all that kind of practical stuff. And then Mindshare will basically go off and do all the offline. So um, practically that really means commercial radio and um, IO out of home. Um, we don't do much linear TV. Uh, it's really those, oh, and they do, they do some partnership stuff as well, sort of like, you know, bigger like native content plays, things like that. But basically all the other digital parts we, we, we run. To both of you now, let's just get into some of the meaty stuff around uh, what's happened in the last year and what you've learnt. Um, what have been some of the key learnings? I think, Elsa, you talked to a few of them, but the hard lessons, the good lessons, and there's no ugly lessons uh, despite what I said uh, in the intro. Elsa, to you first, um, some of the, the key lessons there, uh, good, bad and ugly, but not maybe not so ugly. There have been a few ugly ones, but um, all learnings in the end. And I touched on this earlier, starting with a vision. And for me, you know, having a clear vision around not just what success would look like in year one, but ultimately what type of agency we were trying to build for the long term was important. And as part of that, you know, focusing on attracting the very best people that we could find and afford that's been really critical to our success. You would have been recruiting at the at sort of almost the peak of the talent crisis as well. You're trying to find people when everyone else is trying to find people, I imagine. It's such a good point. And yeah, it consumed my life for probably three months. And interestingly, everyone said to me, you're going to find it so hard to find good people. And I think a combination between luck and it being TWE and that being a really attractive, interesting proposition to talent um, and us also having an amazing recruitment team that sits within TWE meant that, yeah, we've attracted an amazing team. And what I was going to say is finding people that share your vision and values was so important. And I think one of the things I've learned, you know, as part of that is culture is everything and and creating an environment that is fun and that people really buy into has been such a big focus for us. And and what I'm finding is that if people love where they work and love what they do, they'll put in the extra time and the extra effort. And 
it's it's felt like a real startup and I've loved that, you know, because we're in a, a big corporate, but it doesn't actually feel like that. So they're some of the sort of positives. You did um, unf- unfortunately put a red rag to a bull when you said there's been some ugly ones. So what's the what was the ugliest learning? Honestly, I think, and it's probably a learning for me personally, but don't try and boil the ocean from day one. And not just me, but the leadership team as a whole, we were very ambitious. We wanted to jump three steps ahead very quickly um, from what was planned in that original business case. And it's meant that we took on a heap of work with a very small team that probably didn't have all of the capabilities or the bandwidth to take it all on. The fallout of that is that, you know, people get quite burnt out. And so we, we hit a couple of points through that probably six months in where everyone was feeling pretty exhausted, stressed. We'd definitely bitten off more than we could chew and we had to have a bit of a reset, you know, in thinking about if we're going to be um, this agency that is able to take on, you know, really extensive, quite complex projects, we probably need to change um, the shape of the team a little bit to make sure that we've got the right roles to to deliver. The other thing I was going to mention, and I think it's interconnected, is and, and from chatting to a lot of um, people in the in-house agency world, I think that this is a common challenge, is around capacity. There's a perception that the resource is somewhat free because there's not an exchange of dollars between departments. And because of that, you know, in our first year, we've delivered, I think I mentioned earlier, over 400 projects. And, you know, that has really stretched us as a small team. You know, 20 people seems like quite a lot, but when you're talking about that volume of work and it coming from every facet of the business, it can be overwhelming. So did you, you you had to work out pretty quickly where and how to say no. It's interesting because um, even talking probably a good 18 months ago with um, Zara Curtis at the time who was running the, the in-house content play at, at IAG, uh, she was talking about almost having you put a ring fence of quarantining the studio, the creative teams, to not have them overloaded because everyone from every part of the business was going, oh, you can do this, you could do that, and essentially burnout was was a risk. So how did you say no? What did you, what did you start doing to um, sort of address that? So what we realised is we needed very rigorous um, statement of work planning which we didn't do enough of in our first year. So my head of operations and I spent a lot of time with the marketing leaders across Treasury Premium Brands and Penfolds really drilling into what the scope of work was going to look like for the next financial year. And it took us months to get to a definitive list of projects. And then we actually worked really closely with um, both CMOs to remove projects from that list because, you know, what we could see is the volume of work that they were asking of us didn't line up with the number of hours that we had and the number of people that we had to deliver that work. Was it a higher was it higher order work that you took on or, or pushed back and did that work go somewhere else as a result? Interesting. Well, it's a bit of a combination of both. So Treasury still across both TPB and Penfolds work with external agencies and that's really important and will continue to happen. So some projects go external. But also, really interestingly, having that scope of work so definitively laid out highlighted to 
uh, senior leaders within the business, just the sheer volume of stuff that was being produced and allowed us to, you know, go through that process of prioritising, do we need all of this? You know, it's it's it was just overkill was where we ended up. So it was a combination of things. It's really interesting. Um, ben, um, to you on some key learnings in the media side, give us your ugliest first because that's always, you know, good fodder. Oh, there's no ugly, Paul. It's all just sunshine <laughs> and rainbows in the media team. Um, look, I was reflecting on this the other day. I, we've been quite fortunate that we haven't had any major stuff-ups. Like there's been little things here and there, but we haven't had any huge things that have really come back to bite us hard. I mean, for me, moving into this role, because I had an innate understanding of the business, I kind of knew how the pipes fit. And so when you kind of overlay the requirements of executing the media, I, I understood how to make it happen. So like, you know, simple things like how do you raise a PO and is it easier to increase a PO or decrease a PO? And who has to do that? And, you know, all those things to make sure things tick over, um, I kind of knew. So we didn't have any issues. You know, like I said to my guys, you spend, you spend as much time in spreadsheets managing budgets as you do actually optimising media. In fact, sometimes you spend more time because it's, you know, the brand guys often get more upset about an overspend versus missing a CPM target by 5%, you know what I mean? So it's you kind of got to keep the wheels turning. But we've been lucky in that sense. But I think um, probably a bit like Elsa, I, I probably I do like biting off more than I can chew and taking on bigger projects probably before we were really ready or or maybe pushing the business before they were they were sort of ready so i think you know it's probably just a reflection of my own personality that elsa will attest to that like sometimes you know it's just a, you know you're at a 10 and you probably need to be at a five right um and again sort of to elsa's point about not being seen as an executional function i think it was really important for me and my team to to be seen as having a leadership role and you know we we, we took this on pretty early with you know one of our biggest projects was the creation of of global media principles to really take that leadership role and guide how we go about executing media strategies because prior to that media strategies were being developed but there wasn't really a set of overlying principles to make sure they were consistent and that we're adhering to you know the best research at the time and so that was again another project we did in conjunction with Lucian, and it, you know it was it was really kind of a mixture of you know, Ehrenberg Bass and Benain Field and Professor Karen Nelson Field and Mark Ritson and you know all this great you know, data from analytics partners, and we sort of took all that together and, and then developed these set of principles, which means that you know we, we are working with Mindshare, but, but we're the ones that say these are the principles we must adhere to. So you know, and a lot of it um, comes down to quite executional things like. All briefs must be the brand or performance, but they can't be both. And if you do a brand brief, it's got to only have two objectives and one has to be primary, you know, and there's all these sort of things that help guide. And I think doing that just made all of our jobs so much easier. And that's the big picture stuff. But then on a day-to-day basis, I keep reminding my guys of this, is that your role is as much to be an education um, and a a leader for the brand teams as it is to um, execute and and provide that service. And, you know, we've got um, members of, of... brand and, and D2C who some are super experienced and, and some are quite green and particularly for the greener members, I keep reminding the guys like you've just got to be patient. If they keep asking the same question over and over, they're not trying to trip you up. They're not they're not idiots. They just they, they just they're trying to understand this stuff. And I think, you know, um, playing that leadership education role has been really important. And, and you know, not to criticize media agencies, but maybe just a little bit, is that a lot of them don't do that with their clients. It's just here it is. Um, and particularly on the programmatic side, I've seen that where it's just all magic and, and you don't need to understand this, we do. And we, we never really wanted to do that. We wanted to try and unpack the magic a little bit and make it simple and, and not make the brand guys feel stupid for not knowing what a DSP is or, or you know, all this kind of stuff. So I think 
playing that leadership role has been been really important. So when you talk about the the the, the brand people, are you Ben? Are you then talking about the brand marketers, or are you talking about brand media people there? So yeah, there's really the brand marketers. So we've got people who within Treasury, there are teams that work on that, that are basically brand managers, and then we've got specific people who work on D2C performance. If you, if you put it into two buckets, it's basically brand versus performance, right? But I mean, the brand guys are also heavily involved in, you know, executing, you know, below the line campaigns with customers and things like that. So it's it's not quite as, as clean as that. But I guess my point is there, there are there are teams that we work with where we just work on brand campaigns and then separate teams we work with where it's all about performance and, and driving ROAS and clicks and conversions, that kind of stuff, yeah. So this is the this is the interesting bit, I think, uh, in and around this debate is that um, often agencies are clearly defending their, their, their turf and, and they put some, I've you know, you guys have heard them, I've heard them, there's some fairly good cases, clearly not at Treasury, but others where, you know, the, the, the upside, the benefit, whether it be cost, lower rates for media, whatever it might be, sort of flutter out uh, after a year or two. Now, I guess what you're talking about here, Ben, is, you know, you're wanting to get un- under the bonnet a bit more with your team and understand not just the top line. Same with same with the, the whole group, Elsa. How do you keep up? How do you keep up with the, the media and the technology side? It's moving so quickly. Elsa, how do you keep up with what's going on in, in the overall production side of things where so much more... AI is coming in. And if you're at a holding group, holding company level, you've got resource to be across that. You guys are, you've already said, tight, lean machine. How do you keep up? So both on the media and the production side, maybe Ben to you first and then Elsa can fin- can talk talk to the, other, the overall. It's funny you say that about how do we keep up with trends and, and tech and innovations on the media side of things and how could we possibly do that with such a small team in-house. The, the feedback I've had from my team is that they're finding it much easier to do that in-house than they ever could agency because the irony is, I mean, agencies are these, well, they're meant to be these incubators of innovation and, and new ideas and new thinking, but often you're so busy turning stuff around, you haven't actually got time to go to a conference or to do additional course training. So, you know, particularly for guys who are executional, you know, they're, they're not, they're not, they're doing no PD. They're just, they're, they're, because it's all billable hours and 15 minute increments and they just have to execute for clients. Whereas, here I've said to the guys, yes, you've got to, you know, you've got to obviously execute and complete stuff. But I fully expect a part of your day is devoted to having. We've, we've got an RSS feed that we share within the team, and I'm like, you should be in here once a day, reading what's happening, looking at interesting cases. Um, one of the KPOs we've actually set within the team is that every every guy on my team must read one book, they must write one LinkedIn article, and they must turn a white paper into a presentation. And they must read one story from MI3, right, Ben? Oh, yeah. No, MI3 is on the RSS feed. Don't worry, mate. I bet. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly going to be sharing this one around the office. I had a chat with Elsa about this before we did it because I'm like, you know, do you think team keep KPOs are a good idea? And Because uh, we, we don't do this at Treasury. Normally, it's just individual. And, you know, and most teams don't even – if you're in a team, a lot of the time, you won't know what your colleagues' KPOs are. And I, I like the idea of guys working towards KPOs that they shared – um, and that we could all kind of collaborate on. And, and the other thing, well, the main objective really was how do I force these guys into, into good habits? You know, how do I force them to make sure they're reading and keeping up with stuff? Because I don't want them being so focused on executing that they forget that, you know, obviously part of my role is education and, and making sure they're across stuff. But, you know, the, the best way you're going to do that is take it on yourself. And I think in years two and three, I don't think that'll be a KPO because the guys would have already got into a good habit of reading and, and it just becomes part of what they do. Whereas initially you kind of 
almost need to mandate it so that they um, they stay across these things. And 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 they've really embraced it. And um, you know, we'll, we'll do our first presentations. Uh, well, I, I, I guess I kind of did one today, but the guys will do theirs sort of starting next month in August, and and um, and then it obviously it's good for them because um, nothing reinforces knowledge like presenting, and then it's great for the wider splash team because they get uh, access to this kind of insight and learning that they'd never get time to normally read. So. I don't know. My experience has been that we're actually finding it easy to stay across trends. I mean, I'd always like more budget to head off for conferences. And so, I mean, Elsa's has promised me that I'm a can next year. It's on the record. So we'll, we'll loop around with that in 12 months and see what happens. You know, some of the criticism from uh, media agencies in whether it be a hybrid model or a full in-house model like you're talking about with digital media, are you buying cheaper? Are you buying more expensive? Is it that, is it that first, year, uh, first year honeymoon period where I'm told that a lot of in-house operations see some really good uh, benefit year one, year two, it all flattens out. Are you doing different channel mix? Are you buying better? What's different? Are you better? Is it is it more effective? In short, it, it's it depends, right? You know, we are. It's not as black and white as saying we do it better than agency or they do it better than us because a lot of the time it's comparing. Like the examples I've seen, right, where in house say, oh, our CPMs are fifty percent cheaper. When you dig into it, they're not really comparing apples with apples, right? Because I can get a CPM on Facebook of three bucks. Or I can get it for twenty. Well, yeah, but it depends on how I buy it, right? Am I, am I buying in-stream video views, or am I buying, you know? So, you know, you, you've got to be comparing apples with apples. Is is the first thing. Um, and often, when you, and I, that's one of the things I found very difficult was looking at what Mindshare had done before and what we're doing now, because there wasn't a lot of stuff that was exact like for like. So, there was some stuff, and, and you know, we, we've been lucky enough to say that the stuff that is relatively like for like, we, we have achieved some CPM reductions in some areas, that, and others we haven't. So it's kind of a mixed bag but i think the main thing is we are buying differently um which again makes the comparison a little bit different but you know to again to to talk to the benefits of doing this it wasn't necessarily a cost saving it was just you know proximity to the data was one of the biggest benefits speed of turnaround like you know we we just we do crazy stuff like you know we'll turn around a google ads campaign in 24 hours like just stuff like that that you can never get an agency to do unless they're charging a ridiculous amount so Speed, agility, proximity to data. I think th- there's the care factor. You know, like we're asking questions about stuff now that, um, you know, you know, we're, ha- we're having chats with you know data fraud experts like um, Dr. Augustine Fu and th- these sort of guys that just that never came up on the radar when we worked with an external agency, right? So, and part of that comes from we just care. Like I want to know that if I'm spending money on display, that it's actually being seen by bloody humans, you know, and and those discussions didn't always come up with our with our media agency partners. So I think a lot of the time we're kicking over rocks that were never kicked over before and it's, you know, creating new sets of problems. But then the brand guys are really appreciating the fact that we're doing that and and being transparent about what we don't know. And, and I just think, yeah, we, 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 we're just, I think, the, and the transparency piece, you know, like, again, a lot of the time, particularly when you're working with programmatic partners externally, it, it's a goddamn lockbox and you're trying to get an insight into what's going on, and I won't name names, but there are some programmatic agencies who just who just won't give you the data. They just won't give it to you, you know. And I, I ran into the head of a agency, and I was like, "We kept asking, and you guys just never bloody gave it to us." And he's like, "Oh, I'm really sorry about that." I'm like, "Like it's it's a, it's it wasn't the reason why we moved in house, but it was it was part of it, you know. Like, and 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 it's it's like I, I get that you are annoyed that this didn't happen, but by the same token, we can only ask so many times before we just give up and go right." 
all right, I guess we're not getting that and move on. Well, well it's good to hear, for instance, well, one of the, it's good to hear that you're, you're talking to uh, the good Dr. Augustine and you're across this stuff. There's a really interesting report came out out of Cannes last, uh, last week, actually, from the uh, Association of National Advertisers in the US about the big black hole that's that is programmatic and it's just the delta well that well the delta's apparently almost gone but what they are saying there's still a 15 to 20 percent black hole of of media and it's a big problem and the issue they say is that advertisers aren't paying attention it sounds like you are but we could go down a rabbit hole here that's for another conversation Ben so I, I just want to say ask Elsa the same same for you overall uh, how do you keep up AI is a really interesting one around creative and uh, the technology that's going on there. Is it the same same sort of scenario as what Ben talks about? Yeah, so AI-specific, um, like many agencies, external and also other in-house agencies we're talking about, just starting to experiment with AI. And, you know, on a project recently we worked with an agency who developed some PACSEPs using AI entirely um, to put that into consumer testing to validate which brand idea was most interesting. So we're in the very early stages of exploring it. But, yeah, it's certainly something that I see being, you know, a tool that we tap into more and more over the next couple of years, like any agency. I think similar sentiment to what Ben mentioned, we're very interconnected with both the external agency world but also the in-house agency world through industry events um, we sit on councils you know following what's happening around you know the award circuit and also just our connections to you know people that we've worked with in the industry um, across the team and and sort of staying connected with the work that's going on and part of that is you know conversation and part of it is just reading and and following you know all of the work that's happening out there but also like Ben mentioned we regularly present to the marketing team on trends that are going on um, and and great work that we're seeing out in the world beyond the walls of TWE. And I think it's obviously helpful for marketing because they're seeing campaigns outside of wine and even drinks, but it's also good for our team because we're continuing to get exposed to, you know, what good work looks like more broadly and not just in Australia, but globally. So Ben touched on a little bit too, and uh, which was one of the, the the big benefits you're seeing is faster turnarounds. That process of, you know, briefing back and forward to agency partners, and 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 how long it takes to get through the agency uh, process and so forth. Uh, ben talked about it in media, but overall, Elsa, you're seeing that even in the in in the creative uh, work, it's the process collapses. Does it? I think so, and I think. Part of that is having a team that really understands the brands that they're working on. But we've also got a really tight process, which is required because we are a small team managing a significant volume of work. So we use a project management tool. Our team and both marketing teams across TPB and Penfolds are in that project management tool. We have very tight SLAs, which define the number of rounds of work that um, or of development, sorry, that work can go through. And I think part of it is also just being in the same building and sitting next to the stakeholders who are, you know, the client, for want of a better word, on that project and being able to, you know, quickly check in and align to, you know, 
a specific piece of feedback or question it if it doesn't make sense. Well, you, you open up another can of worms there with work from home and creatives because creatives love to be together, don't they? They love to sort of hang out and bounce off each other. I find that even with my with my journo team, it's so much better to swing the chair and go rather than here we go, I've got to do an email make a call but that's going to take us to places we don't have time for one, one thing i i did want to ask both of you really quickly is with all of that with all that the the the, the upside to this in-housing what do you both think is the future of agencies agencies external agencies will always have a really important role to play and i say that thinking that you know in the future i there's every chance I would love to go back and work external. You know, there's there's lots of parts of it that I do miss. I think it's certainly going to be a hybrid role that they play. So working with in-house agencies will be part of the future. I think the agencies that do well in the future will potentially have a strong specialism rather than, you know, the agencies that are sort of jack of all trades and trying to do a bit of everything. That's certainly you know, when I look at the agencies that are working with TWE now and doing really well, they are very focused and specialised in an area. I think that their role will potentially become more strategic and more consultative as in-house agencies continue to grow and expand and some of those sort of creative and potentially production capabilities do move in-house. And, you know, there's obviously a bit of talk around the large retainers, you know, that we saw in the past might not be a thing of the future. And and I imagine agencies will see more project-based work. We'll, we'll have to debate this another time. I, I mean, I hear that that argument a lot from the in-housing um, side of it, which is, but the, I guess the thing that it doesn't account for is the, is the business model of agencies and so much of the sort of the stuff that you guys are doing now, for instance, might yeah, with some curtains and some some grey, uh, underwrite some of the other things that that agencies do. So the business model here start the economics start to get really interesting. Ben, media wise, media agencies, just a quick grab from you. We really do have to wind this up. The executional elements of media, I kind of find it hard to see where that sits in an agency in the future, particularly when you're looking at things like social search retail like I'm, I'm, I find it I mean there will there will always be use cases I guess for smaller mid-sized companies but then the irony of that is that they need it but they can't afford it right so you kind of get into this catch-22 but yeah I mean much like what else has said it, it's that more strategic role and also probably powering tech that they've got the economies of scale to deliver that maybe a single brand doesn't so things like mixed market modeling or econometric modeling like you know that kind of stuff I kind of see agencies being able to deliver that perhaps more cost effectively than a brand trying to build a model from scratch. And I think that's probably that kind of space is perhaps more where I see media agencies in particular playing um, in the future. Final question. Um, Elsa, you you did flag up about three hours ago, there's maybe some sort of structure and, and positioning going on here for potentially a global sort of hub or a global rollout. What, what is the thinking there? in time wise and do you think that will happen? Yeah, I'm really keen for it to happen, but I want to make sure, you know, taking on board all the learnings we've talked talked about and, you know, not not trying to boil the ocean on day one, that we do it in the right way. So yeah. at the moment I'm just um sort of doing some work to first of all understand what the different markets need. Um, but also to weigh up do you have everyone sitting in Melbourne as a one central hub? And I think there's benefits of that where you've got leadership and, you know, they're part of that splash culture. Or do you um, create little offshoots in the specific markets? And to me, the benefit of that is that you're in the same time zone and mm. potentially an extension of that marketing team. 
So I think it'll be in the next six to 12 months that we look to expand into different regions. But I also think we need to make sure we do it properly and and that there's a good amount of sort of planning and understanding the business needs and, and thinking about how you structure the team so that we're set up for success. Well, uh, I'm going to have to be rude and stop now, Elsa Beaumont, Ben Oliver. A really interesting conversation, super interesting conversation, actually. So um, uh, unfortunately for you, I'll be back around to have a follow-up on this um, and see what happens in year two and whether everyone's still happy and uh, and and fulfilled and, and stimulated. But um, really good conversation. So thanks for joining. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. Thanks, Paul. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.